Welcome first-time listeners and returners to The Sports Deli, where thoughtful conversations and insightful guests are always tops on the menu. Join Dr. J and myself, Hootie Hoot, as we continue our discussion on contemporary social, educational, and sport issues. If you want to send us an email, feel free to do so at thesportsdeli at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at Mike Hootner or on Twitter at Michael Hootner. Now grab your favorite bagel or deli sandwich and favorite beverage and let's do this together in the sports deli. Well, we're joined by legendary coach Mike Jarvis. You can find him at coachmikejarvis.com on Instagram at coachmikejarvis on Twitter at coachmikejarvis. Now you're teaching uh, a leadership class. Uh, talk a little bit about that and what that means to you after all these years, uh, the seven C's of leadership. Well, I tell you what it means is first of all, it means I'm still alive. <laughs> and it means that, uh, you know, the, the lessons, good, bad, and indifferent that I've learned over the years from, I mean, so many incredible people uh, I'm now able to share and, you know, whether it's a young man or a young woman or an older man or older woman who's taken the course and whether they played sports or not, you know, when you, when you dig deep, you know, you realize that, you know, no matter what it is, you know, everything seems is connected. And it all goes back to, you know, the different disease that I talk about in my book and in my course. Have you had any coaches or former players take your class? You know what? I haven't yet. You, Coach, you talk about communication, yes. and I was curious, you know, you've been the teacher for years, and how has communication changed now, and the, and, the, and the young people's understanding the importance of it? Like, I'll use an example. If Hoot and I, you know, we're about the same age, we're, you know, I'm 49, he's 50. If we were communicating and we wanted to go do something, we would call each other, and we'd make yeah. a plan, and we would talk, and we'd verbalize, are you going to call so-and-so? I'm going to call so-and-so. Nowadays, with social media, how does that change the, how people think of communicating, good and bad, of what they're saying and how they're in the tenor and tone they can come across, even if it's unintentional? Yeah, well, because of the fact that we don't communicate verbally uh, with one another, you know, and very seldom we look in the other person right in the eye, very seldom can we sort of feel what they're feeling by just being with them. You're listening to an interview with Mike Jarvis former head men's basketball coach at Florida Atlantic University, St. John's University, George Washington University, and Boston University. Coach Jarvis won a state championship in high school. He played three sports, baseball, basketball, and football. And after winning the state championship in the Boston Garden, which is how they did it back then, being from Cambridge, Massachusetts, they rode around the city on a fire truck after midnight celebrating their state championship. Now, back to the Sports Deli's interview with Mike Jarvis, and he now talks about some of his mentors when he first started getting into the business of coaching. I was watching today the ESPN's uh, Women's um, and Sports Summit, and it was very fascinating to listen to a lot of the things that they were saying, and tied into what you're talking about in terms of leadership, you know, and you were mentored by some, some very 
historic people, Red Auerbach from the Boston Celtics. And you had talked about, in a couple of different instances, you had gaps in your career. Uh, after Harvard, you had a gap, and then you had a gap after St. John's, and you talked about how difficult that was. And one of the things they talked about today was uh, so often we are guided by things that are outside of us. Uh-huh. And so I'm curious, how, how do you help people find, everyone has a voice. How do you help them fine tune that voice, that inner voice, so that they truly follow their calling? Uh, and talk maybe a little bit about your mentors and, and how they helped you do that when you were first starting out in the business, because it was very different back then uh, as a you know, young African-American male you know, out of Cambridge. Yeah, which was very different. Yes, it was, and um, and yet I I was blessed. I mean, I I mean I had my mentors. What they were was, you know, they were great teachers, and you know, I, I like for example, my college coach uh, Dick Dukeshire, um, who went on to actually start really was the guy that started to develop uh, basketball in Greece. Um, he was Greek and he went over to Greece and he started to develop the basketball programs there. And so, I mean, I studied him not just as a basketball coach, but really as a teacher, you know, where he would position himself as it related to the team. Um, you know, when he would, you know, when he would communicate, how long he would communicate. And, you know, I picked up a lot of good things from him. I also picked up some things that weren't so good. For example, you know, he, I like him too too often talk too too long. Um, I spent too much time, you know, maybe at the wrong time trying to teach. In other words, you know, I, I I sort of wish that he had taught me that sometime the best thing to do is just keep quiet and wait till the next day before you start correcting and teaching. And and that that's one thing that if I, you know, uh uh, were to coach again, I would do a lot differently. I mean, I think I could be a lot more patient with my words and I could be a lot more thoughtful with my words and really try to think about, you know, certain words and the impact that they have on kids, especially today, because kids today, I think uh, they're nowhere near as uh, tough, you know, um, you know they don't, words, I, I think, can really knock them for a loop for a long time. You know, we we would... We would get knocked down, but I thought I think we got back up a lot quicker than the kids today. You left the team for a while, and if it wasn't for your brother and <laughs> you've done your homework, he, he, um, you wouldn't have been back on the team. So you know, he he was very forgiving, even though he was tough. Well, you know, it's 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 yes, he was tough, and uh, I I made the mistake that many young kids today make. In other words, I blamed him for my lack of playing time. Uh, you know, I was a, I was a, I had really good talent. I was a tough, you know, little point guard from Cambridge and we had great teams and we won and, but we won mainly because we were just better, more physically better than everybody, not because we were a better team. So when I went to college, uh, my lack of fundamentals really came out and it affected my playing time, but I didn't realize that. So I quit the team and thanks to my brother's, um, you know, uh, keep it after me. I went back and asked for a second chance. Uh, I was fortunate that I had people in my life that when I messed up, uh, they would give me a second chance. I mean, I had a lot of second chances, thank goodness. Otherwise, I, you know, I wouldn't have 
I don't think I'd be sitting here talking with you today if, if he didn't give me another chance to come back and be on the team. Now, he didn't play me very much uh, even after that, but um, but that's when I decided I wanted to become a coach and started to, you know, uh, develop my coaching notebook and uh, really, you know, gear my life towards coaching and teaching. Coach, in the 80s, you took over the BU Boston University program, and I'm curious, as, an Af- as a young African-American um, in a city that's not known for being overly progressive. Bill Russell's talked about that. What was your experience like in particular? How much did you benefit by being from Boston and Cambridge in that area in pre- preparation for that comparatively to if, if someone else that was African-American had come from outside and tried to take the program on? Well, I think if somebody else had come in from outside, outsiders, when they came to Boston, were intimidated most of the time. They allowed, uh, you know, the city structure of the city, the racism that existed to basically control their lives and where they went and what they did. I, I didn't know any better. I was born and raised in Cambridge. And even though it was, it was right across the river, I mean, what separated Cambridge from Boston was the Charles River. And, you know, Cambridge was a lot more liberal, forgiving city and you know you could go anywhere in the city and, and be known by every by any any part of the city. You'd know them; they know you. You didn't have to worry about you know being called all kinds of names and being run out of the neighborhood. Um, so I didn't know any better, and probably that was to my advantage. So when I went to BU, I wasn't intimidated by being in Boston and being in a you know pretty much a white Irish Catholic um, dominated environment. Uh, because I myself was was educated and raised by Irish Catholics in Boston. So, uh, you know, I sort of, I mean, I, I knew my way around the city. People knew me. And I never really felt, you know, like I was an outsider where I think most Blacks that came into Boston did. I, I always felt that that was my home. I belonged there. And, uh, you know, you weren't telling me where I could go, what I could do. I was going to go where I needed to go and wanted to go. And then having people like, Red Auerbach, you know, uh, Satch Sanders, who introduced me to Red Auerbach. Satch was, you know, one of the great Celtics players. He wore number 16. His number hangs in the Raptors. And I was able to get a job over at Harvard. Uh, When I left Northeastern, um, you know, I went to Harvard to work with Satch. And then I, you know, that opened up some doors uh, with people like Red Auerbach. So, you know, I was, I mean, I, I tell you what, I mean, when you talk about, you know, the people that God puts into your life, and uh, that can make things happen for you without you knowing it. I was really blessed. So you talk about Red Arbach, Satch. Um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll jump forward in a minute. Uh, you know, when Satch left, you thought you were going to get that Harvard job. And that, that was, a, you know, a tough pill to swallow for you. But before that, you worked at Northeastern as an assistant for Jim Calhoun, who later on went to Connecticut. And obviously, you know, we know the rest of that story. How, how was yeah. it working for you? Well, you know, we, even when we worked together, we competed, we still competed against one another. In those days, you had (laughs) freshman teams and JV teams, and every day we would scrimmage. So even when I was on his, on the same team with Jim, I was competing uh, with Jim. Then we continued to compete against one another when I was at Harvard, and then we continued to compete against one another uh, when, when I was at BU, when he was 
uh, at Northeastern and then Connecticut. And then the rivalry continued when I went to St. John's. I think he, I think he thought, he probably thought I was just chase following him around so I could <laughs> coach against him. But we had such, we had wars. I mean, all from playing and from high, from college. The only time we didn't compete against each other was in high school. Um, but other than that, I mean, it was like, it was game on all the time with, uh, with Jim and uh, great coach. And uh, I'm really grateful. I'm really glad that he decided that he wanted to keep me on the staff and that I could, you know, stay in the game. Because once again, if, if that didn't happen, then I, I probably wouldn't have gone to Harvard and then I wouldn't have gone to BU. I mean, so, you know, one, one job always seemed to lead to the next one. And uh, I was very grateful for that, you know? So, so in between those stops, um, you thought you were going to get the Harvard job, as I mentioned earlier. Yes, I should have. Yeah. You should have. And then, so there was a gap, but you learned some things. You started a program for youth, which ended up being very beneficial uh, for you later. Um, obviously, you coach Patrick Ewing. Uh, a lot yeah. Of know that. <laughs> that had a little bit to do with my yeah, That had a little bit to do uh, with ascension. it. Yeah. But what people don't know is that you started the Shoot Straight uh, youth program and you know you uh, wanted to give back to kids obviously it was something that you were passionate about um, you know the, the future generations and one of the players in that program was Ramil Robinson who ended up obviously uh, going to Michigan and won a national championship in Michigan in 1989 and and talk a little bit about he, he was drafted in the NBA talk talk about that program how that helped you cope uh, maybe in the same way that between St. John's and Florida Atlantic, how difficult those years were for you in between jobs and well, you what know, that did for you. Well, I tell you what, uh, we started the shoot, shoot straight was a youth co-ed youth basketball program. Um, you know, I had, I had, I had seen and witnessed the success of Biddy basketball in the Midwest, you know, in Indiana and Ohio and those places. So we started a youth program. My kids were young and, uh, my son was playing ice hockey. Mike was playing ice hockey and wow. we had to get up at 5.30 in the morning to go to practice. So I said, we can't have that week. So I started a basketball <laughs> program, probably just so I wouldn't have to get up and go to, go to an ice r- hockey rink in the morning. And uh, so we started the shoot straight program. I started it with a, a friend, uh, associate, a teaching fellow by the name of Joe Colanino. And it, it just really developed into a really special program. It was our, it became our feeder program in Cambridge. It was for boys and girls starting basketball in the third grade. We we made our own uh, uh, bitty basketballs. Uh, we played on eight and a half uh, foot hoops. We used a game, uh, adapted a game from uh, my teaching days in phys ed, sideline basketball. So every youngster played the same amount of time. And, you know, they, I mean, so our whole program was developed from the third grade up. So by the time kids got to high school, they had already been in my basketball program, some of them for four or five years. And they, they certainly had the fundamentals down. And that's where a lot of our players, in fact, all of our players came out of the shoot straight program. And, and we, we didn't let the parents coach. Our high school players were the coaches. So they would practice and then they would teach. They would teach. Uh, the, the the younger kids and they were the role models and the leaders for the old for the for the young kids in the community, so they became sort of like the the heroes in the community, the role models, the teachers, the coaches, and the program just perpetuated itself and 
and kept us basically one step ahead of our rivals for a long time. And, and in fact, the program is still being run. It's being run by one of my former players. Um, in fact, there were like, I think we had three freshmen started at the high school. Patrick Ewing was one, Ramil Robinson, and then a young man by the name of Lance Dotton, who went to Michigan on a football scholarship. I tried to recruit him to BU to play basketball, but he went to Michigan with a defensive back. And um, so Lance is now a teacher. In fact, he's coaching at the high school. He's won some state championships as the high school coach, and he still runs the Shoot Straight program, and that's that wow. still serves as the feeder program in Cambridge. But uh, And it was co-ed. So you know, we staggered it so that the, the girls were a little bit older than the boys and they could compete uh, the same level with the younger boys. And uh, wow. it was quite wow. successful. More than Coach, That's amazing. Yeah. Coach you, you, you coached Patrick Ewing. Yeah. Another big man you coached was at GW, was Ian Kadare. And I was wondering if you could yeah. talk about, you know, and obviously, unfortunately, he's passed away since. But if, if, can you talk yeah. about what, what made him special at GW? Obviously, a unique player. But why didn't he make it in the NBA at a time where, you know, he was a first-round draft pick? You know, from that standpoint, what do you think was it, was it that he didn't make it through? Because it appeared he had all the skill sets. Well, he, he didn't have the skill sets. He had the size. He had the strength. Um, I mean, you know, his – his go-to shot was a dunk and uh, right. the gym would shake when he dunked, right. but he was so strong. I mean, and you know, it's funny when my assistant coach, Ed Myers, um, you know, he, he, he went to Nigeria, uh, went over to Africa to a tournament, saw Yinka and he, you know, he called me up and said, coach, I saw this kid. I, he said, he, he, what a physical specimen, but the kid, he, he you know, he can't play, but more than a couple of minutes before he's winded and he has to take himself out. So my one of my former players was an assistant coach now at Boston College, Scott Spinelli, was coaching at Milford Academy. And I called Scott up and said, Scott, I got this kid I want to recommend to your school. Told him his name, Yinka Dare, and he met Yinka. He immediately offered him a scholarship. Yinka went to Milford Academy on a scholarship. And I remember going up to, to see uh, Yinka and saying, listen, I, I don't know, there's obviously something physically wrong with you uh, because you should be able to play more than two minutes without having to come out and lie down. So I told him, I promised him, I says, you know what, if you have a problem, he thought it was a heart, he had a heart problem. And I says, you know, the first thing we'll do if you when you come to GW is I'm gonna have you examined and we're gonna find out what the problem is. And I says, if it's something that will prevent you from playing. I said, you're still gonna have a scholarship, so don't worry about that. And uh, so he came to GW. I took him over to Georgetown, to the doctors over there. They examined him, come to find out he had asthma. And, you know, with a little inhaler, uh, uh, taking a couple of puffs, he, he went from a kid that couldn't play two minutes to a kid that go could go through a three hour practice. Wow. And, and what he didn't have when he first started was a lot of skill. He had a lot of power. He had, you know, just raw athletic ability and a great desire. But, um, and, and, you know, he wasn't ready for the NBA when he, when he left. And so he never really developed into a really, you know, an NBA player uh, because you got to have more than just strength. And he wasn't, he was about, legitimately, he was about 6'10". 
uh, even though we listed him as seven feet, uh, but he was 6'10", and he wasn't quite big enough to be able to play the way, you know, with his with his skill set, the way that he probably would have had to play. But uh, he, you know, and then he had some problems with his knees. He had got some bad advice, and they operated on both knees at the same time. So that really killed. I mean, he was done athletically. Wow. And wow. then I think what happened was just when he was starting to get back in shape to maybe make a, to try to make a, a another run at it, um, you know, he, he died of a heart attack. Great kid. And uh, he put G, he helped put GW on the map. Make no mistake about it. You're listening to an interview with Mike Jarvis, former head men's basketball coach at George Washington University, Boston University, St. John's University, and Florida Atlantic University. Mike went to the first game that Bill Russell ever played at the Boston Garden versus the Philadelphia Warriors. And he went with his brother, who always looked out for him, helped him get a second opportunity at Northeastern when he quit the basketball team as a sophomore. And his brother made him go and apologize to his college coach. Um, And from there, he was able to graduate with a degree in physical education and started his coaching career. Now back to the interview with Mike Jarvis and the Sports Deli. Uh, I know you've talked about Patrick Ewing a lot, obviously. You know, of he, course. Trust, he, he trusted you uh, in his younger years. But I want to ask you, I, I, I know he had COVID and he's doing well now. H- how proud are you uh, are you of him and, and his ascent? And, and Patrick Ewing had that stigma for years. He couldn't get a job. And, you know, he's, he's doing a really good job at Georgetown. He is. Talk, he is. talk about his, how proud you are of him and, and what he's doing and what he mean, what he means to follow, you know, obviously there's a couple of people we had Craig Escherich on and, you know, but to really follow in his mentors footsteps, big John. Well, you know, Patrick was always, I mean, John used to refer to Patrick as a warrior, which he was uh, Patrick's, um, you know, main goal whenever he competed was to win didn't care how many points he got. Um, he sometime, I think, was proud of the amount of rebounds and block shots than he was points. But he wanted to win. That's the only thing he, he, I mean, he cared about was winning. And during his high school days, I mean, he helped us win a lot of games in a lot of different ways. I mean, one night, I remember, in fact, one, I think it might have been the first time that John Thompson saw him play. John was sitting with Red Auerbach in the Boston Garden, and we were playing against Boston Latin High School, and they had an All-American by the name of Paul Little who went to Penn. And, you know, there was one of those games that came down to the last couple of minutes, and Paul Little drove the left baseline. I can see it like it was yesterday. And Patrick, you know, left the post, went down, put his foot out of bounds, bent his knees, took the offensive foul, and uh, Paul fouled out. We went on to win, and that propelled us to our first state championship. Uh, during the time that, you know, Patrick played mm-hmm. for me in high school, uh, we lost one game. We were 77-1. and one. We won three consecutive state championships. And the only team we lost to was the state champs of Connecticut, Wilbur Cross, and, um, at, on their home court. And, uh, in fact, the next year we beat them uh, at, at Boston U uh, in, a, in a rematch. But uh, Patrick was a winner always was a winner. And he was always a student of the game. I mean, he didn't say a lot, 
but he was, you talk about communication, you know, being not just a, uh, the ability to talk, but the ability to listen and understand. And he was a great listener and he really understood what he not only he was supposed to do, but what everybody else on the court was supposed to do. So he would be the first one to put his hand up and say, hey, coach, would you repeat that? And, um, you know, he's always at the front of the class, you know, right at the front. And, um, you know, if you needed somebody to, to, to demonstrate or you need somebody to help you, he was always ready to, ready to do so. And, uh, you know, uh, and he's, he's doing a great job at Georgetown. Um, you know, it's a little different. They don't, they can't get all the players they used to get, but he's, he's starting to get some guys. And I think as he gets better players, his teams will continue to get better. He works his butt off. I've been in a couple of his practices and I see how hard he works as a coach, just like he did as a player. Um, he's probably got to just tone it down a little bit himself, you know, <laughs> be a little bit, little bit kinder and sweeter. Look who's talking, right? To the, <laughs> to the players, but um, he's a tough guy. I mean, if you, if you go play with him, boy, you better be ready to go to work and you, be re- you better work every second because that's what he expects. He expects the same out of you that he expects and, and gives himself. How, how do you think he's handling um, just everything that's going on now? Uh, the the social injustice, um, you know, COVID, um, you know, and how, how would you, if you were back in coaching, you know, how would you handle it? It's very sensitive in, in certain respects and, you know, players have social media and, you know, they want to make sure that they're heard and um, talk a little bit about, where we're at as a country and and if you were a coach how you would how you would be handling that kind of situation well i think the first thing i'd want to make sure that everybody understood was that they were how blessed they were to be in the united states of america how they were in the greatest country in the world how america you know uh, and folks in it no one's perfect our country isn't perfect but it's still the greatest country that god ever created and I'd want them to really embrace that first and foremost and be proud of being an American and being proud of, you know, um, where we've come. And then I'd try to make sure that they understood what was as much about what was going on and what was behind the different movements. Uh, a lot of people, you know, don't under, really have no I, I understanding of, you know, what Black Lives Matter is, what Antifa is. I mean, you know, what the goals and objectives, what the platforms of some of these different organizations are. And then I think the thing I'd want to try to make sure the kids understood was, hey, if you don't like something, then try to make it better. Try to just think about what we can do as a team, as a community, to make things better for the next group of kids, the next group that's coming along. So, I mean, that, that's what I would try to do. I'd try to get them to be as responsible, you know, and try to figure out how we can try to make this a better world that we all live in. And uh, in the meantime, be proud of the one that we are in and embrace it. Have any of your players called you and said uh, they're having a hard time with social injustice more than they ever have, or they're depressed, you know, depression and mental illness and mental health is, you know, uh, something that's being talked about more now is, is run our test or any, anyone reached out to you, your former player at St. John's? I've talked to some of my former players. I can't think of one player that's called me and said, you know, and I really feel like, you know, the world is collapsing on me. I think they know that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, but 
there's a lot more that we can do to make it better. Yeah. Coach, do you think in the recruiting process now with everything going on, do you think that young people and their families will look into more the social situation on college campuses more than they might have in the past? And do you also think that maybe this is that we've seen, a, you know, we've seen Howard University get a big time recruit. Do you think there could be more of that with the HBCUs going forward or is that a one and done type of situation? Well, I'd like to hope that, you know, any school that's trying to do it the right way would have success recruiting, whether it be a historically black college or, or any place. Um, but, you know, let's face it. I mean, it's still about media, exposure, name, you know, kids, let's face it. They, they wear champions shirts. They don't wear the teams that come in third and fourth. They, they usually put on the, I'm sure there's more Lakers shirts being worn right now than there are Detroit Piston shirts. That's right. Hey, watch it now. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my bad boys in the background here. Come on now. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. It can but be you yours. Know, it can be yours for 50 cents. There you go. Hey, I got some cents. good stuff back there. Come on there now. Go. Speaking of 50 cents, he was just on TV the last couple of days. <laughs> yeah, he but, was. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, it's it's really funny. I, I mean, I, I know that wherever I coached, you know, we would go into homes and we would try to sell, you know, the community that the kid would be coming into and how we would try to make that community better and how they could help to make it better. And, you know, the education that they would get and the support they would get. And you'd like to hope that maybe with everything that's going on today, people will, will realize that that's even more important than maybe they ever thought it was to try and find the right community, the right coach, you know, uh, for their son uh, or daughter to go to. Don't you feel like you were ahead of your time in that way where you were uh, taking into consideration a lot more than just coaching, whereas a lot of coaches for a long time, you know, were just coaching. And they, and, and they weren't doing a lot of the other things that you were or Big John or John Chaney or Nolan Richardson or any of these other coaches that, you know, looked at the whole person and took a more holistic approach. Well, you know, the difference, I think, with a lot of us, you mentioned some of the guys that, that I used to hang out with, um, you know, that, uh, that basically were the trailblazers for black coaches. And most of those guys were like myself. They taught high school or junior high school uh, and work their way up to become a college coach. They didn't start out as assistant college coaches. So they were teachers and they were uh, part of uh, that high school community. And I think they took a lot of that with them when they went to college. So they, you know, it was a lot easier for a lot of those guys to look at, at, at coaching in a much more holistic way than maybe a lot of the young guys today that are coming along that, you know, have grown up, you know, and have maybe ascended into college coaching jobs without ever having really, you know, uh, had to mop a, or sweep a high school floor uh, before practice. So, so that, it's a different world. It's a different game. You're listening to an interview with Mike Jarvis, who took George Washington University to a Sweet 16 and St. John's University to an Elite Eight. Now, back to the Sports Deli's interview with Mike Jarvis. Coach, you take St. John's to a high level. 
going to the Elite Eight and the Big East. I've had a debate with friends of mine. Is playing in the garden an advantage or disadvantage comparatively to having an on-campus arena for St. John's in the recruiting? Because yes, you're playing in the Mecca, yada, yada, but you know, it's not always packed and it's off campus as opposed to like an, an experience that you see for UConn and other places that have smaller size arenas and it's on campus. If you were advising St. John's and someone came to you and they said, would putting an on-campus arena, a true arena, not Carnesecca Hall, be an advantage and help St. John's, what would you say? I, you know, I, I mean, I would say in most cases, I would agree that you'd probably be better off with the Cameron effect. Right. Um, but I think that because it's New York, I think you still probably would want to try to take advantage of the glit and the glamour of Madison Square Garden. Um, you know, you just would have to do a, a better job at selling it and trying to fill it. New York's a different, it's a different animal. You know? can, you talk, can you talk about that? I mean, how is it that New York City really has not had a winning bas college basketball program, you know, since your time at St. John's at a high level, and yet the amount of talent there year in and year out is still very strong? It's strong, but you got to realize that, you know, when kids think about going to college, most of the time that's equated with going away to school. So the majority of the kids in New York are not going to go to school in New York. And, you know, when I first went to St. John's, the biggest advantage that we had was the fact that um, our players um, could live, lived at home and they could get the, the stipend based on the cost of living. So they were able to live at home, get a good size check every month that could help pay their parents rent, help bring some food into the house, could help them get an automobile and have some pocket money. So they, they, they were able to live a pretty good life, okay, at St. John's. And this was before dormitories. I, when they right. built the home, they took away the biggest advantage that we had. And I tried to explain that to some people. I don't think they still understood, understand it. I mean, they wanted to be like Boston College and Villanova and have a campus and all that, but they didn't have the infrastructure around, you know, there. So it, it actually hurt us. And a lot of the guys, when you, you know, Lou Conaseca, God bless him, I love him. Um, I mean, he would go into a home on a recruiting visit. He would have a little napkin, paper napkin with him. And at the end of the recruiting visit, he'd pull out the napkin and he'd have the kid look at it and the kid look at the napkin. And inside the napkin might be a number like 60,000, you know? And he'd say to the kid, well, if you come to St. John's, you know, that money could be yours. And the kid would look and say, what are you talking about? He'd say, well, that's, you know, you add up the room and board over a period of time, it's a lot of money. So a lot of kids, you know, went to St. John's because of, uh, of that. And they had the ability, like I said, to live at home and and have a pretty good, uh, you know, uh, college life, uh, you know, as opposed to many of us who went to school and never had a dime in our pocket. But, right. uh, you know, uh, so we were better off. St. John's was better off without dormitories. Um, you know, so our mm -hmm. kids, I mean, because the dorm, the amount of money kids would get, even if they, if they wanted an apartment, would be based on the cost of living in the dormitory. And St. John's also made another mistake. They undercharged. Uh, you know, they made the, the dorms very reasonable 
And that was great for the average kid coming to school, but it was bad for the basketball players. Hmm. So anyhow. Interesting. That's, Interesting. Yeah, that's when we lost our advantage. And that was like, I think in my, I want to say my third year at hmm. St. John's, they, you know, and uh, that was, it was tough. It was tough when yeah. they built those dorms. Interesting. So, Coach, you, you've talked about how you didn't like the studio, but you liked being a, a, an analyst, uh, you know, doing some color commentary, you know, when you were doing some announcing for a while there. And uh, I always like to ask people that have transitioned into the booth, what coaches, when you were announcing games or in the studio, did you learn from, uh, surprised by, um, and are, are proud of that you didn't really know about before you got into the booth? And, and what, have you, what did you learn when you were in the booth? Well, you know, one thing I learned was that, that there weren't any, I, I couldn't think of any bad coaches out there. I mean, they're all good coaches. Um, and, you know, and, and, and what you learn when you're in the booth or behind, you know, you got the headset on and you're doing a game is that there's a lot of different ways to be successful. And, you know, you might have thought, well, you had to do it this way or that way. But what you find out is guys do it a lot of different ways and they have a lot of different styles doing it. And uh, so I, I, I think my respect for coaches grew even more when I started doing games and I saw how different coaches were and how successful some guys were that, you know, you just didn't hear much about, you know, like, for example, and I go back to my days at, at St. John's, for example, and, you know, I think of, you know, obviously you got Jim Calhoun and, you, and, you know, you had um, before, you know, before, before the, the, the Calhoun, you know, coaching days, I mean, you had the, the John Thompson's and the Roly Massimino's and the Lou Conasecas and, you had all these, I mean, just, you know, bigger than life coaches. Uh, didn't Raleigh think Patrick was going to go there and he ended up going to Georgetown and then ended up beating him? <laughs> Talk about well, irony. Yeah, well, they beat them too. So it worked <laughs> yeah, for both right. of them. But you remember that game, but um, you almost had right. the game to go and overplay. But, um, you know, yeah, uh, Patrick had narrowed his schools down to, I want to say, six. You know, there were two, the two Boston schools, BC and BU. Patino was at BU. Dr. Tom Davis was at BC. Villanova had Rowley. John Thompson was at Georgetown. Um, Larry Brown was at UCLA. Dean Smith at North Carolina. And I want to say those were the schools that Patrick was mm -hmm. going to pick from. Not a bad group of schools. And, uh, but I, you know, the, the guys that, that, you know, I used to love coaching against Calhoun, just like I loved coaching against John Calipari. I mean, you know, because those were the guys that you, I mean, you could get up for, uh, you know, <laughs> play it. I mean, you could just, you just wanted to coach against those guys. And when you beat them, I mean, it was such a great feeling. With the spike going on nationally, 31 states seeing an uptick, how do you see college basketball being able to be played this year and is it really, are, are we really going to have to look at a bubble for the big time schools and compare the difference that the, a big East school will have to go through this year compared to like a place like BU is going to have to go through this year in an attempt to play? Well, I think the bigger schools will have an easier time managing it for a lot of reasons. One is, you know, they've got, I mean, they, they, they'll have the budget. They could, they could test their kids every day, some of them, if they had to. 
Uh, and if they go into a bubble situation, they'll be able to handle that financially a lot easier. Uh, the other thing is the big schools charter. Uh, they fly by private jets. So they're not gonna be traveling through the airports, spending time in the airports like the smaller schools, the poorer schools do. And I think it's, it's those are the situations where the young, young people and older people are probably most susceptible to getting sick, you know, in those in and in in the airport on the you know maybe on the commercial plane. Um, so it's going to be very difficult. Um, I don't, you know, I I, I mean I, I and there are some conferences, you know, the minute some one kid gets sick, the, the whole conference is liable to close down, you know. Um, and if there will be other conferences, the bigger conferences, they're going to try to make it happen because it means a lot in revenue a lot in exposure so it's going to be very very it's going to be very interesting to see how this season plays out did you watch so, any of the nba games i did um what did what'd you think of the bubble um well i tell you what it worked out great i mean i i, I thought that um you know it it sort of like even the playing field a lot for a lot of different teams and I think the teams that normally would not, I mean, I think some teams did better than they, than they probably would have normally because they didn't have to, you know, get on a plane and didn't have to play in the, totally. the home game. So, you know, there's no huge advantage for anybody in terms of the home court, you know, and I think back to the days of the Boston Celtics when Red Auerbach was coaching and the Lakers would come in and he'd put them in a, in a little small uh, overheated locker room. 100 degrees. 110 <laughs> degrees, 10 showers. I mean, cold showers, <laughs> nails in the wall where you hang up your clothes. I mean, you know, uh, of course, they don't have any locker rooms like that anymore, but, mm -hmm. but there's still a huge difference between the home teams and the Disney bubble, you know, where they played the games at Disney. Everybody pretty much had the same facilities and obviously the same court for every game. Definitely. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it. Um, and, I, and I was really happy to see uh, Miami uh, and Boston. Uh, and Miami go as far as they did um, because uh, I think Eric Spolster's, you know, he's as good a coach as there is in the game. And, uh, you know, that Miami... Uh, uh, team that Miami program franchise boy I tell you what they they know how to they know how to put a team together you put a group I think you put a super team together and I was sort of hoping that they'd win it all and that you know I could say you know the best team won not necessarily the best players and um, but at the end of the day talent many times will overcome yeah, well, Jimmy Butler, you know, brought back the mid-range game. That was fun to watch. It was, uh, you know, yeah. and for an old-time coach like myself, uh, a lot of fun to watch, you know. That's the way the game used to be played, you know, get get the three-point play the old-fashioned way, the hard way. Take it to the hoop. You're listening to an interview with Mike Jarvis, who coached Patrick Ewing in high school. Interesting story about Patrick. He was sick during his junior year in a high school game in Connecticut where they were playing the defending state champs and he was so ill that he kept sweating through uh, multiple t-shirts that he put on under his jersey but he liked how it felt so he continued to wear the t-shirt under his uniform 
And when he went to Georgetown to play for John Thompson, Coach Thompson allowed it. And he even went to Nike and asked Nike to brand it. And this began the t-shirt under the jersey craze for over a decade. Chris Mullen from St. John's wore it as well as uh, many other players. Now back to the final segment of the interview with Mike Jarvis, former head men's basketball coach at Boston University, George Washington University, St. John's University, and Florida Atlantic University in the sports deli. We're going we're gonna to ask you a few fun questions, and then okay. we'll give, give you the stage. Talk about anything else that you want to talk about, your other books or, or anything else, and then we'll have some parting words for you. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Quick answers. Uh, 45s or 8-track tapes? <laughs> 45s. Yes, they're still relevant. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. So now you've gotten to know John and I a little bit. I usually ask this question, and but I'm going to ask it now. Okay, What's so the best looking between you and John? No, definitely not. I, I, we I know, know that. <laughs> we, we know that, right, John? It's exactly. exactly. Okay. There All we right. go, Dick. Okay, so you had one scholarship or preferred walk-on spot available. Would you take yeah. John or me? Well, you know, I haven't seen you practice, but I would say I probably would take you because you probably would be able to go through these th- my three-hour practices better than John. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So um, as a kid, did you ride your bike to school or walk? We walked everywhere, babe. But, you know, in Cambridge, everything was within walking distance. The community center, the ball field, the schools, you name it. The library, everything is within, within walking distance. So we walked everywhere. Three Stooges or Lucy? Three Stooges. Wow. Gilligan's Island or the Munsters? I'd have to say Gilligan's Island. <laughs> there you go. Uh, the Honeymooners or Leave it to Beaver? Oh, you know what? That's a, that's a tough one. Jeez, I watched both shows. I mean, those are the shows that I grew up on. Right. But I would say... Jackie Gleason. Uh, Jackie Gleason. Yeah. yeah. Okay, send it to the moon. <laughs> the, honey, the Honeymooners. All right. Uh, watermelon or Grapes. Both. <laughs> vacuuming, you've been married a long time. Vacuuming or dishes? Well, I've done the dishes for 53 years now. That's how long I've been married. Uh, wow. I made a, deal, made a deal with my wife. If the then is good, I'll do the dishes. I shouldn't have never said that because I've been doing dishes for 53 years now. Talk about that for a second. Uh, you know, uh, what's the secret to your success? You know, you've talked to, in the past about her. Uh, words of wisdom when you were in between jobs and uh, you know nowadays it's just different how, how has it been sustained for so long that's just remarkable well you know what it's all her trust me i don't know how she's she did it but i i i, I would tell my players number one try to find not only somebody that's good looking but try to make sure they can cook because there's many a night, baby, you know, if you get a good meal, that's probably all you're going to get. So make sure you got a, a woman that can cook. But most of all, make sure you get a wife who, become, who wants to become your partner in life and wants to basically be a part of your team, maybe become your team's psychologist because yours as well. But uh, somebody that's going to invest their life and become a part of yours. Amazing. Drive-in oh, yeah. movie theater or Netflix? 
I used to love the drive-in movie theaters. You know, it's tough. We had a lot of good times at the drive-ins. Totally. You know? Candy or popcorn at the movies? I uh, have popcorn. No butter. No what? Butter. Oh, that's no butter. <laughs> no butter. <laughs> just a good, just some good hot popcorn. A little bit of salt. Real quick, Coach. We were talking about this with someone else in Boston, I think it is, and New York. The movie theaters, you know, they can't have shows. They've been selling the popcorn, and people have been lining up on the streets to buy twenty buck popcorns to take home. Well, in those cities, people are nuts. You know that. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nothing, yeah. nothing, nothing would surprise me. I'm surprised they don't have a brown paper bag with with some uh, <laughs> right. uh, cheap wine in it to go with the popcorn. <laughs> you know. Larry Bird or Magic Johnson? Well, come on now. You know, you know. I mean, well. I mean, I'm going to take Larry, even though, I, I mean, if I was, co- if I'm a, in terms of to coach, I probably would take Magic because he was that much more versatile, but, yeah. but, you know, hey, Larry Bird, I mean, you know, let me tell you something, let me tell you a Larry Bird story. Larry Bird, one day I was in my office at BU and I got a phone call and the person said, hey, coach, this is Larry. I said, Larry who? He said, Larry Bird. <laughs> and, um, you know, you know, I've been hurt. I said, yeah, I've been coming over to the garden. I really miss watching you play. And he says, well, I'm, I'm getting ready to start playing again. And he says, I, I was calling to see if you'd allow me to come over to practice with your team. And he says, all mm-hmm. I want to do is go through the fundamentals. I just want to go through the drills. And I mean, so could you imagine one of the greatest players who ever walked the face of the earth? He wanted to do the drills. And I, 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 I was so excited and I made a mistake. I told my athletic director, he said, you can't do it. You can't have him. It's illegal. I should have just went ahead and had Larry Bird mm-hmm. and then pleaded the fifth afterwards. Said I, I'm sorry, I didn't know. But right. um, imagine wow. having Larry Bird come wow. in and go, and go wow. through the drills with your players. He didn't want to scrimmage; he just wanted to do the drills. What a great wow. story! Him and Kobe are renowned for being uh, fanatical about fundamentals and their footwork. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, a couple more. All right, so there's seven seconds left. Uh, you're up three. Other team has the ball. You foul or let them shoot. Well, when I was coaching, I would I would I would play defense, figuring we could stop anybody at any time. Nowadays, I think I would practice the foul. Uh, you know, try to really teach my kids uh, when, where, and how to foul. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Well. Um, any anything else that you want to share about your books about uh, anything else that maybe we didn't touch on? Well, you know what I, I I really want to say is this I I mean I wish I could I I it would I would love to think that if I said to you if anybody wants to get any of my books they can just go to coachmikejarvis.com, which they could I'm not going to sell many books that way but I will say this that if 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 anybody wants my book, <laughs> go to Coach Mike Jones. <laughs> and um, if anybody wants to have somebody who coached and taught for over, I guess I guess about forty years, come and and give a give a talk, whether it be live or virtual. Um, you know, could be on could be on the game, it could be on life, it could be on leadership, it could be on life skills. Uh, hey, I'm ready. And if anybody's looking uh, for a coach, uh, you know, I, I always thought that that I would coach until I was 90. And I think I would have, 
if my AD was a little smarter than he was, because um, I should still be coaching, uh, to be honest with you. But uh, but I'm enjoying. But I'm I'm just I'm glad to be alive. And uh, you know I would love to coach again. Uh, maybe I'll get a high school job in the next year or two. And, and Is it Mike Junior yeah. coach in high school? No. Well, he's got a yeah. He's got a prep school. Prep uh, school. Yeah. In, in Connecticut. Connecticut. Um, yeah. Because back in the day after camp, we used to hang out with him. Yeah, well, he's, he is one of the greatest guys. And, uh, you know, he coached, he was my assistant coach at the age of 12 when I coached the McDonald's All-American game. And Great we had story. Michael Jordan. And uh, I was able to pick my assistant. And when I told the guy, I'm gonna, I, I got my assistant, you'll meet him when we get off the plane. And when we got off the plane, the guy would say, well, where's your assistant? I says, he's right here. I says, <laughs> my son. And so, Coach, tell us about tell us about what you, how your son's doing at Green Farms Academy. He is. <laughs> let me tell you, he is doing fantastic. Number one, he's a great teacher, great coach. Um, he loves the game, loves the kids, uh, and they're really fortunate to have him. I'm sure they're winning a lot more games than they ever ever have won, playing different than they've ever played. You know, he's got. He now he, he's firing up a ton of threes. Still playing man-to-man defense. So he's doing great. Uh, he should be coaching at a big time Division One school. I mean, he he's really he coached with he coached with Coach K. You know, he's 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 had some great jobs. Oh yeah, he's he's his biggest. You know, his biggest problem was his biggest problem was that he was my son, and he never ever got the credit that he should have got and would have got. And if I had to do that all over again, I would have probably traded sons with another coach at another school. Said, "You take my son." You know, you take him off to Michigan, mm-hmm. I'll take your son with me. And at the end of the day, I think Mike would be coaching right now at a big-time Division One school, to be honest with you. Okay. Well, if he hadn't uh, gone down the, the bench and told Adrian Branch, uh, you better start playing some defense in the McDonald's All-American game, you probably wouldn't have won that game at 12 years old. What probably great not. Story that is. Probably not. He uh, – <laughs> You know, he says, hey, dad, he's not playing any defense. I said, what are you talking about? He says, Adrian, he's not playing defense. So I said, you're right. So we took him out. Adrian went down, stomping down the end of the bench. Mike got up out of his chair, went down, looked Adrian in the eye and said, Adrian, if you don't play defense, my dad ain't going to put you back in. Adrian sat back up. Um, Two or three minutes later, Mike hit me with an elbow and said, hey, dad, let's give Adrian another shot. Put him back in. He played his butt off. In fact, he was the MVP, even though Mike should have won it. Mike Jordan. Right, right. Adrian was the MVP of the game. We won 96-95 over <laughs> a, a very talented West team. And, and a quick uh, story on that. Yeah. You know, Michael Jordan's known for holding grudges. And yes. if you go and if you go back and watch the 1984 North Carolina Maryland game with eight <laughs> sec, the true story with eight seconds left. If the, the dunk that he became known for was the first time he pulled it out at Cole Fieldhouse. And oh. the story in the locker room is that's what Cole Fieldhouse gets for not giving me the for giving it to Adrian Branch and not me for the all Amer- for the McDonald's All-American. That's why well, he dunked that way. I you know, I, I I did an article with a writer from Wichita who told me that story. And if he didn't tell me that, I wouldn't have never known it. Uh, this would have been the first time I ever heard that story, but and the other one was Billy Packer told the story because Billy Packer was at that game and Michael Jordan's mother 
was going <laughs> ballistic in the stand, <laughs> yelling at the people who chose, like yelling. And Billy Packer had to go up to her. He goes, Mrs. Jordan, your son is going to have a lot of great things coming his way. Don't worry about this. And she goes, he should have been the MVP. They, took, they took it from him. They took it from him. You know, and, she so. was, and she was right. But, uh, you know, it's funny that after that game, we had a dinner and we were on the, all in the elevator. And going up the elevator was Packer and Mrs. Jordan and Mr. Jordan. And she says to me, she says, oh, my poor boy, my poor Michael. He never gets any recognition. That poor kid always gets the short end. And I'm saying, so years later, I would say, oh, he really got the short end. <laughs> that was fine. Those were the things that, that really motivated Mike, um, to be honest with you. Um, you know, and you're right. I mean, he hated to lose. And I guess from uh, very reliable sources, he never forgot. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, interesting. Uh, hey, it is interesting. It's, it's interesting what makes us tick, isn't it? Huh? Totally. It is, definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, Mike, uh, we, we appreciate your time. I, I don't think you get enough credit uh, for what you've done for college basketball. There was only 16 African-American coaches when you started uh, your career as a head coach, and eight of those were at historical black colleges. So to be one of eight at that time um, – you know, it's just a remarkable thing. And, and I applaud you for how you always handled yourself, whether it was at summer camps when we were there with you or uh, as a head coach and, you know, how you handled the, the, the in-between jobs uh, and, and the media. Um, you know, you were a class act all the way and, and it's, it's, it's been really fun and, and an honor. And like I said, I don't think you get enough credit. Well, I thank you. I really, you know, and, uh, you know, it's I was, when we went to Wichita to play in that McDonald's game, I remember one of the Texans, one of the guys there, he, a guy from Texas took us out. He bought us all these uh, 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 cow, cowboy hats, you know. And he says, <laughs> you know, Coach, he says it's really hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. <laughs> and he says, but I want you to have this hat. And I never forget, I wore wow. that hat. And... Uh, you know, and it, it, humility is, it's tough. It's, I mean, and so I, I appreciate you saying that. And I know you wouldn't say it if you didn't mean it. And I accept it with, 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 with respect and humility. And I just thank God for giving me the opportunity that he gave me. And like I said, if I, you know, uh, hey, who knows? I mean, I, uh, I might make a comeback at, at when I'm 85. You know, somebody will say, "I want to, I want to hire that guy. He'll be my assistant." And, uh, there you go. We'll see. I was hoping to be Mike's assistant. Uh, that was the way I wanted to end the end my story, working as my son's assistant coach. But uh, that wasn't God's plan. So, hey, that happens. Man plans, God laughs. Exactly. I said I, it's been a pleasure being on with you guys. If ever you, if ever you want to do a rerun or a do do this again, please let me know. It's been a lot of fun. I, I love I love going back in time, and uh, I got a million stories. So we we could talk for hours and hours and hours, as you can tell. Leave us with one. Leave us with one last good good story, whether it's in a deli or with Coach Beaton or any anything else that you you want to share. Well, let me tell you. Let me let me give you this story. I I told you I had um, I was fortunate. Um, I got a job to work with Sat Sanders, Celtic uh, great guy I used to go and watch play. And uh, my brother-in-law and he were friends. 
So my brother-in-law called me up and says, hey, how would you like to work with Sat Sanders over at Harvard? Well, I was teaching at the high school. So from the high school to Harvard was like a 10 minute walk. I said, I'd love it. So uh, he says, well, I'm gonna give you Satch's number, give him a call and maybe you could talk to him about the job. So I called Satch up, it was a Sunday afternoon. And I says, hey, Ed, uh, this is Mike Jarvis and I introduced myself and I told him I was friend, you know, was my, uh, who my brother-in-law was, he says, and I said, I'd love to talk to you about the assistance job at Harvard. He said, well, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just here, <laughs> I'm at home. He says, well, come on over and we'll talk about it. And he lived over in Roxbury, man, over in Roxbury. So I borrowed my mom's car. I drove over. I got to his house. I knocked on the door and he had his hat and coat on. He says, come on, come with me. We're going to pick up my wife. She's an airline stewardess, flies for Delta. So we, 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 we drove in his big old brown Cadillac from Roxbury over to the airport. We got over to pick up his wife to find out that the plane uh, was delayed. So he said, you know, we really haven't talked much about the job. Come on, we'll go back to the house. It was about 15 minutes. We'll go back and we'll talk. And then I'll come back and get it later. So we drive back to the house. Still, have, we haven't talked about not one second about basketball or anything. And uh, we get in the door. No sooner we get in the door, the phone rings. His wife's plane it just landed. He said, come on, we're going to go back. <laughs> so we go back. We pick up, the, pick up his wife. On the way home, he talks to his wife, you know, the usual chit chat stuff. We get back to the house. I walk up the stairs, ready to go in to talk about working with him. And uh, he says, um, I'm tired. He says, I'm going to bed. I says, Mr. Sanders, I says, I came over here to talk to you about working with you, the coaching job. I says, we, we haven't talked one second about basketball. He said, listen, I'm tired. I'm going to bed, you go home and do the same. I says, but what about the job? And as I was leaving, he says, don't worry. He says, you got the job. I just wanted to see if I liked you. <laughs> and that was <laughs> it. And, so and, and so I got the job, never talked once about basketball, yeah, nothing. Amazing. Oh, but Funny. you know, he said, I know, he said, he knew all about me. He knew what I, he knew about me as a basketball coach. He just wanted to see if, if, if he could yeah. hang with me, you know? That's right. 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 We spent a lot of time together. That's great. That's awesome. In fact, I'm going to oh. call. I got. I got to call him tomorrow. Awesome. Well, say hi to my junior and I will. Uh, uh, stay safe and enjoy the college basketball season. And and we'll we'll, we'll hook up soon again okay. down the road. You know what? Um, and the next time we do meet, we'll talk a little bit about GW and about Scotty Beaton, and because he basically Scotty set the wheels in motion at GW for the European uh, international Absolutely. connection, you know, where we got Alexander Kuhl and Yegor Misharikov and we went to uh, Serbia or we went to Poland, we went to Lithuania. We went, we were, we were among the first coaches that recruited internationally. And uh, Scotty was the guy that made the connections and, and really, you know, helped put, help us recruit internationally. And once we started getting kids from overseas, you know, it was a lot easier to get more. So I just want, I, I want to give a shout out to Scotty. Definitely. Okay. Sure. And, and just tell, let him know how much I appreciate what he did for us. Yeah. And well, you put GW on the map, like, like you said, in large part because of that, uh, 
the international recruiting that you guys did. It was it was fun to watch. Those were some fun years. <laughs> you also said you could make some good recommendations on delis around the country. Oh yeah, make no mistake about it. Good, hey, corned beef and you know and hot pastrami and hey, you name it. In fact, uh, my wife and I were talking about in the uh, years ago when we used to go to New York, how we couldn't wait to get to Carnegie Deli. Oh yeah, and uh, you know and have the have those humongous sandwiches and everything else that went with it. But uh, nothing like a good Jewish deli, you know. Absolutely not. Nothing. And I got like it. hooked on the on the matzo ball soup with uh, chicken noodle and matzo ball and oh man, I'm oh. good. I'm good to go, baby. Yeah. All right, my friends. All right, Mike. Take thanks care, so guys. much. Thank you very Take much. Take care of yourself. Michael, Jonathan. Be well. See ya. Be well, guys. Mask up and vote. All right. See ya. Amen. Coach. See you, buddy. See ya. I voted yesterday. See ya. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. Can't tell you who I voted for because I'm nope. in trouble. There that's you go. Okay. That's, that's all right. See ya. All right, coach. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Mike Jarvis for joining us in the Sports Deli. If you want to know more about his three books, you can go to coachmikejarvis.com. First book is called Skills for Life. It's a book about life skills. The second book is called Everybody Needs a Head Coach. And the last book we talked about earlier in the podcast, The Seven C's of Leadership. You can also follow him on Twitter and on Instagram at Coach Mike Jarvis. You can always send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Mike Hootner or on Twitter at Michael Hootner. Until next time, for Dr. J, I'm Hootie Hoot. Thanks for joining us in the Sports Deli. Mask up and don't forget to vote. Go to www.vote.org. And remember, every vote matters. Black Lives Matter. Peace.